Regular listeners to the documentary on One will know that we invite listeners to contact us if they have an idea for a story. And back in 2019, Paddy Deegan from County Clare did just that. This story has intrigued me most of my life, so I sent in an email, gave some background details, and here we are. It was April 1967, and Paddy was 12 years old. An Irish lady who had died in the USA was being brought home to be buried on her home ground in the Arden Islands. And she was flown into Shannon Airport, her remains, and from there by helicopter she was being airlifted when the helicopter apparently wasn't able to carry the weight and the coffin was dropped from the helicopter. But a coffin falling from a helicopter into a field in County Clare that was only the start of things to come. Evening Echo, Monday 3rd of April 1967. Dramatic interruption to Aaron Burial. Coffin falls from helicopter sling. And because it had happened so close to us we felt like our area was in the news, you know, and of course the newspapers had it. Incredible circumstances in dropping off coffin. I'd like to find out why they made the arrangement to go by helicopter. Why not the Navy or the main supply boats for the islands at the time? Why the helicopter? And was there a near accident investigation by the Aviation Authority at the time? And if there was, where is the report? I'd like to see that. And just curiosity. That's it. But whose remains were in the coffin? Boston Globe, Monday, April 3rd, 1967. I was born Mary Foley, 20 years a governess in Boston, had one last wish. It was not granted. Miss Foley, who died in Boston, age 56, wanted to be buried in a family plot at Inish Man on the remote Isles of Arran, off Western Ireland. I'm Sarah Blake from the documentary on One Team. And I'm Trasavranach from Radio Ngailtachta. Together, we set out to find out what happened that led to these events that took place all of 55 years ago. And with lots of local help, we've been able to find many of the people directly connected to the story in Ireland and beyond. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Miss Folan's Last Wish. With a story like this, where else are you going to start but on the island of Inishmeon? It's a small island. It's the middle of the three Aran Islands, Everybody knows each other, they know each other's history, they know each other's relatives. Where was her home place, Rory? Her home place, up the road here, not far up at all, and money in Mary Folan was born on the 25th of March in 1911. She came from Moni Ruige in Inishmeon, which is in the middle of the island. And her parents were Sean Vicky, or John and Mary Keneally. She was known as Moira Vicky on the island because her father was Sean Vicky, and that would have been the normal way that people are known as and identified. Mary still has relatives on the island today. I'm, I'm Rory Keneally here from Inishmeon. I remember the day so well, 1967, April day. We spent the day here because she was supposed to be landed in this field here. Ruri's sister was married to Mary Folan's nephew. She had four sisters on the island and a brother was in the home place. And what did the family do, Ruri? Oh, a bit of farming, like everybody else, and and fishing and trying to make a living, like... It was kind of hard, but still the people was kind of happy. Like everybody was trying, was, was, was trying to make a living. She, she had, she had an, an one sister as well. She was living over here. She was in America as well when she was young. Irish was Mary's first language, but she also learned English at school. And we know from the records that she finished primary school, which would have been common at the time. She then left the island to enter a convent in her teens, but soon realised that she didn't have a vocation. Mary emigrated to America in 1929, when she was only 18 years old. She sailed on the SS Scythia and arrived in Boston after a journey of eight days. Her fare of $30 was paid by her sister Coit, or Catherine, which would have been a fair amount of money for the 1920s. There was a small bit of confusion when we went looking for files about whether she was called Mary Folan, which is what she was called on her birth certificate. On some of the files in America, she was down as Mary Foley, all the Keneallys became Connollys, all the Folans became Foley's. 
As soon as she arrived over in Boston, it looks like Mary spent most of her life there working as a nanny and housekeeper for the Duffet family. They were based in Winchester, Massachusetts and had four children. So I'm sure she was kept very busy. The Duffets lived in a beautiful home in the suburbs and they've told us how kind and good-natured Mary was and how the family stayed in touch with her long after they grew up. Mary was well looked after by them too and we can see from travel records that, unusually for the time, she made a few trips home to Ireland. Rory Keneally remembers her last visit in 1962. Uh, I remember her one time seeing she was home on holidays here from America. And I remember she, that she was wearing glasses. She was thin. Was she smaller, big? Or oh, no, no, she wasn't too big and she wasn't too small. Nice size of a woman. Oh, she, 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 she looks to be a nice, very nice person anyways. Everybody, I think, liked her. Michal O'Farthe is a grandnephew of Mary Folan. Oh, that's what she looked like, all right. We show him something he's never seen Did before. She, oh, she looked like her, she, she looked like her, she really... Oh, she's, she's like your grandmother, yeah. Michal was just five years old when Mary died. We talked about it, I suppose, all the time. It was kind of a strange story in the family. It was always somebody asked you, did something happen in your family? And obviously, that was the one that we talked about it. Coincidentally, Michal's wife Helen has a separate connection to this story. My name's Helen Brown and I was originally from Ennis and I moved to the island 30 years ago because I was the public health nurse and my father was a journalist based in Shannon Airport in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Helen's father, Tommy Brown, covered the story in the newspapers at the time. In 1989 I came here and I met Michal and he came to Clare and he said, oh, I wonder would your dad know anything about the coffin that fell. And I said, oh, I remember that. And Michal met my father and we talked about it. But he was amazed that not much more was done about it. I think there was always suspicious that something was funny about the whole setup. But I mean, that would be only very young, but at the same time, hmm. it never went away. There was always some kind of a trickery about it. Or... I was talking to one of her nieces and she told me that the year she made her first communion, her aunt sent her a first communion dress. And then I said to her, Do you, did she ever send you anything else, like toys or clothes or anything? And she said she sent her a big bag of lipstick once and that the men on the island wanted to use it to, to mark the sheep. Mary became ill with cancer and had just turned 56 when she died on Friday the 31st of March, 1967. I'm Parikyo Fahorta. I grew up on Anishmaon. Mary Fallen, uh, actually, she grew up in the house next door to me on Anishmaon. And I remember uh, her being home on a visit from the States a couple of years previously. And I think we would have heard the news that she had died in America, you know. I suppose news came by telegram, or especially in this case, because she was to be brought home and buried on the island. Uh, otherwise, maybe person might have died maybe a week or two before you'd get the news on the island. Like we knew about this because uh, that was our wish to be buried on the island. In 1967, this wouldn't have been a common occurrence. Most of the people who would have died in America from the island would have been buried in America at that time. Not many were brought home. Foley, in Boston, March 31st, Mary. Mary's death notice, outlining the unusual arrangements, appeared in the Boston Globe. John and Mary Foley. Wake at Cleary Funeral Home, Roxbury, on Saturday, 2 to 8 p.m. Remains will be removed to Shannon Airport, Ireland, by Irish International Airlines, arriving Sunday at 9 a.m. Casket being transferred to helicopter for flight to Aran Islands for massive requiem and burial on Inishman Island. Service in Ireland, direction Cleary Funeral Home. Cleary Funeral Home was run by an undertaker called Eugene, or Jean Sheehan, who was responsible for bringing Mary's remains home. Originally from Cork, he had been in America for over 40 years. John Donlan, I was Consul General in Boston from 1969 to 1971. Spent much of my career in the Department of Foreign Affairs. An Irish person, particularly an Irish-born person, dying in Boston, certainly in my time there, would automatically, their first port of call would have been, well, who do we know? 
Uh, Gene was so well known in Irish circles. Uh, his business was small by American standards. By American standards, it was basically a one-man band. But it was very well located, just beside the Mission Church, a Redemptorist church in Roxbury in Boston. Gene Sheehan was a tall man, over six foot, with a distinctive growth at the end of his nose. He took pride in all things Irish and was involved in the Ada Society in Boston and Irish-American politics as well. He had framed hanging on the wall a leaving certificate from Ireland. And I was a little bit surprised, so I asked him, had he done his leaving certificate in Ireland? And he said, no, no, he said, I left school at 14. But I had a friend in the Department of Education and one time I was visiting him and I discovered he was the man whose job it was to get leaving certificates printed. So I got a few blanks from him. And when I came to apply for my license in the state of Massachusetts to practice as an undertaker, I needed to show certain qualifications. And I looked at his leaving certificate and lo and behold, he had honors in embalming. He was very proud of that. And uh, I realised then, nice fella, great fella, very helpful, but a bit of a rogue. And one of the things he had developed was uh, burying people who had died in Boston back home in Ireland. In fact, he promoted that quite actively. There was a local Irish-American radio station and Gene took um, advertisements, basically pointing out to people, look, it's nearly as cheap to bury you in Ireland as it is to bury you here in Boston because funerals in Boston were very expensive. And Gene Sheehan had worked out some arrangement with Aer Lingus where they would take the coffins on what was called a space available basis. In other words, if there was space in the, in the hold, they gave him a special rate. According to the newspapers, this trip from Boston to Shannon with the deceased Mary Folan was Jean Sheehan's 54th crossing of the Atlantic with remains. On this occasion, Jean, who was always a little bit innovative and as well as entrepreneurial, decided a lot of money could be saved if he would hire a helicopter. And this particular funeral that brought him a certain notoriety in the media in 1967, it was a funeral to Inish Mann, he thought this was the ideal occasion on which to use the helicopter. In normal circumstances, Sheehan would have had to engage another undertaker on the ground in Ireland to transfer remains from the airport to its destined location. But this came at a cost. To get to the island of Inishmion from Galway, a journey of about 30 miles, he would also have had to transfer Mary's coffin from a fishing vessel or the Naveina ferry to a Curragh. He was quoted in the Cork Examiner as saying he didn't fancy doing the transfer to the Curragh at that time of year. Using a helicopter cut out the middleman, or at least one of the middlemen, especially when a new helicopter company was conveniently located in Shannon. My name is Michael Smith and I left the Royal Navy in August 1966 and joined a company at Shannon Airport called Transworld Helicopters. My name is Sean Oakes. When I left the Air Corps in Baldonnell, I got this job with um, TWH as a maintenance engineer on their Hughes 269 helicopters. As well as assembling these helicopters in Shannon, Transworld had a training school and were also trying to develop a chartered helicopter service. On one occasion, and when I was away on business in England, the company received a phone call from the Aer Lingus uh, ground handlers to say they had a coffin which needed to be... Would it be possible to take it by helicopter to the Aran Islands? Sean Oakes was there on the day. We were in the classroom, as, as I remember, on the Friday that the request came in to uh, Transworld Helicopters offices and it came in to our instructor at that time. Now, he wouldn't have had any uh, helicopter experience at all. He was an ex-airline pilot, so he wouldn't have any expertise in whether it could be done or not. The necessary arrangements were made that Friday, the 31st of March, the day of Mary's death. And it was reported that the cost of the whole transfer from Boston to Inishmion 
would be in the region of £300. Mary's wake took place the following afternoon in Cleary Funeral Home in Boston, overseen by undertaker Jean Sheehan. My name is Roger Farty. I'm from Ballinwood, Englishman. Roger was living in Boston when Mary Folan died and he went along to her wake to pay his respects to his fellow islander. I was at the funeral, that's about it, you know. I, I saw the poor woman dead and saw her laid out in the coffin. She's like an angel, honest to God, laid out. I don't know if it's a casket or a coffin because it was covered white, you know, around it. But uh, she was there, she was beautiful. Some people did have suspicions about the undertaker and what he was actually shipping back to Ireland. Well, the story was going around that uh, he sent a casket or bodies, or supposed to be bodies, to Ireland and, and there was nothing there but arms, you know, guns and things. Roger heard another man say to Mary while standing at her coffin that he didn't believe that she'd ever see Inishmion. There was one, uh, one man there... He begged them, really, will he talk to them, not to give it to him, you know? Because he was like the seen young very well and he was nothing but a real cowboy and you couldn't trust him. What really hit me is uh, when he was looking at the body, you know? And he just finally walked away and he said, he said, you've never seen this man, he said. Well, he close to Carpenter, you know? We all left the room, well, almost, you know, there was a few left and closed the coffin and he said he's on his way to the airport. I wanted to do the body come over us all, you know. It's possible the reason for suspicion around Gene Sheehan was because of his Republican roots. He was described in the newspapers at the time as a noted figure in the War of Independence. Sean Donnan first came across Sheehan's name in advance of taking up his post as Consul General in Boston two years after these events took place. When I was going to Boston in August 1969, as was then the custom, if you were going to Boston as Consul General, you called on the President, who was Eamon de Valera. And it was normally a courtesy call, not very much happened. But when he heard I was going to Boston, he sent for his secretary and he dictated to her the names of five people that he wanted me to keep an eye on, as he put it. And one of the five was Eugene Jean Sheehan. And he said, Jean Sheehan, he'll be the last man in Boston to let you down because he's an undertaker. But Jean Sheehan wasn't always an undertaker. President de Valera went on to say... He said um, he fought with me, uh, particularly in the War of Independence and then in the Civil War. And he was a bit of a rogue. And at the end of the Civil War, when the instruction went out to every volunteer to cease activities, Gene didn't cease activities because he had a score to settle. And he shot a Free State Army officer outside a cinema in Cork as a result of which we court-martialed him and we sentenced him to exile in Australia. But he only went as far as Liverpool before trading in the ticket and he swapped it for a ticket to Canada because he wanted to go to America. Not to Canada, he wanted to go to America. But he knew if he got to Canada, he'd be all right, the old fellows would look after him. And he was smuggled from Canada into Boston and he has spent the rest of his life there. We don't know if Mary Folan knew about Jean Sheehan's past when she was putting her affairs in order. And to find out more, we spoke to Dr Gavin Wilk, a historian with an interest in the militant Irish Republican movement in 1920s, 30s and 40s America. One of the men who um, really caught my eye during the research was this man named Eugene Sheehan. He appears... I guess in the historical record in 1925, documents related to correspondence of Sheen between him and Liam Pedler, who was an IRA gunrunner, as well as Catherine Enright, who was an Irish-American Republican activist in Boston. And for the IRA, he was really an ideal young Republican in Boston because he was highly active, 
The letters reveal how enthusiastic he was for the cause, how he was really you know, getting other men and women involved with protests and raising awareness for the Republican movement in the local area. Around that time, Gene Sheehan would have been seen driving around Boston with Republican messages displayed on his car. And even though small amounts of arms were smuggled by Republicans from the US to Ireland during the 1930s, Sheehan himself soon became an IRA target because of suspicions he was feeding information back to the new Irish government. Things began to shift a bit, especially after um, Eamon de Valera came into power and Fianna Fáil came into power in 1932. Sheehan moved more towards the the non-physical force, I guess, Republican mentality. So much so that he was actually targeted by the IRA as being a a free state messenger boy. Um, He was noted as as being that in one of the the periodicals that appeared in 1940. As we go into the 1950s, 1960s, he becomes, in many ways, an unofficial Irish-American representative for Ireland. Like, so, for example, in 1965, when the Pope visited America, um, Sheehan was part of the Irish delegation. He attended the, the mass the Pope celebrated Yan- at Yankee Stadium in New York. He was also with the Irish delegation at the United Nations. So you can see Sheehan had these connections both in America as well as in Ireland. Mary Folan's coffin left Logan Airport, Boston, on the evening of Saturday the 1st of April, 1967, and arrived into Shannon Airport on the Sunday morning. Sean Donlan wasn't involved at the time, but as Consul General in Boston in the years that followed, he can give us an insight into the process involved in repatriating remains. You had to have documentation to identify the deceased. That was the first point. The coffin was then sealed and... The funeral director, in this case, Eugene Sheehan, he would hand carry the documents with him to Ireland. And when he arrived at Shannon, he would have to deal with the customs. And my best information is the customs would accept the documentation and not open the coffin. Relying on the documentation and to some extent probably their trust in Jean Sheehan, who was, would be regarded as a regular. My best information is that the coffin was never opened on arrival in Shannon. Back on Inishmion, Mary Folan's sister, Coates, was not happy with the plan to transport her sister's remains by helicopter to the island. She sent her son, Porrick, to Shannon Airport to intervene. My name is uh, Mia Lucan Cannon, and I come from the same Inishmion, the same island as Moira. And I'm a friend, or I was a friend of our nephew, Porico Forster. I was working in Galway, and uh, he asked me, could I go to Shannon with him to bring up the coffin? And he had hired a boat in Galway to bring it up. And we inquired, and uh, the lady said that the coffin was in, in the airport. I don't know where, whether it was on the plane or, you know, we didn't ask now, to be fair. And but she, she said, she asked us then, why are we down there? And uh, we said we were going to bring the coffin up, or arranged to bring it up on here to Galway, and we had arranged for a boat to bring it out to the island. But she said, there's a man here, and as far as I know, he's bringing her to the island. Jean Sheehan was now in Shannon Airport, making final arrangements to transport Mary's coffin by helicopter to Inishmion. So we asked her, could we see him? Oh, sure, she said. She went in, and after a few minutes, he came out, and he introduced himself, and we introduced ourselves. And uh, he told us that money was left, and his contract was to bring the coffin straight to the island. So, I mean, we didn't doubt him in any way, you know. And he didn't ask us to go to see the coffin, or, and we didn't ask him either, to be fair. So we asked him then, does he need any help from us? No, nothing at all. At that stage, we sort of spoke to each other and we said, what's the point now? There's nothing else we can do except phone home. So we came to Galway and he phoned his brother and told him that the coffin was coming to the island by helicopter and really that's all I had to do with it. It's just we didn't know all these things were going to happen. 
At Trans World Helicopters in Shannon, the preparations continued. In Undertaker Jean Sheehan's mind, Mary's coffin was going to be placed inside the helicopter. He didn't realise that the method for carrying freight was by sling underneath the helicopter. The chief engineer was called in to fit the sling mechanism. Essentially a hook with long straps connected to a sling which carried the cargo. This was something that had never been used before by the company and the pilot was requested to try out the sling load on a test flight. Michael Smith, who was a flying instructor with Transworld at the time, describes how the managing director supervised the operations. He then sent two of my trainee pilots over and told them to get the coffin on one of the cargo trolleys when we would get our ground engineers to hook it onto the cargo hook. It did actually have a real, a proper dedicated cargo hook with the purpose of seeing whether it was the helicopter was powerful enough to lift two pilots and the coffin. And I can tell you it would only just have been so even with a low fuel state. Nevertheless, they did lift it into the hover. Uh, we're quite pleased that they were able to do it. The managing director was very pleased and told them, OK, we'll get ready to go and we'll, go, we'll fly it to the Aran Islands. Whether that Sunday was calm, the coffin weighed 236 pounds and the helicopter company was licensed to carry heavier loads, so nobody thought there'd be a problem. Father Austin Ferguson, Thanamathorum. Father Austin Fergus was the priest at the time for the islands of Inisir and Inishmeon. The word came to me that there was a funeral coming to Inishman from America. Usually, if there was a funeral coming into the island, they'd come in in a boat, curragh, a trawler, or maybe underneath here. You know? we, we never experienced this before. There had to be slung underneath the helicopter and brought in. Three lads in a curragh rode me across to the cave of an man. I walked up about a mile to the church. Preparations for the funeral had already been made by the islanders. There was a grave ready, like, you know, for the burial. And... We were getting ready for the funeral mass, like, you know. Mary Folan's grandnephew, Michal O'Fortha, and local man, Ruri Concanon, recall the scene on Inishmion that April day. So this is the field where the helicopter was going to land. Yeah, I remember a big white sheet in the middle of the field here now, kind of over to the side. We're landing. And we put the blanket right beside the church. Stones on it. <laughs> to keep us, to keep us steady. Most of the islanders were waiting, including Mary's brother Cullum and four sisters, Coates, Peggy, Breeds and Anna. There'll be people on the wall, standing on the wall here and stuff like that, waiting. And I remember like a lot of them would be in the traditional dress with their capini on and they were waiting for the plane holding their capini. The helicopter took off from Shannon at 2.30pm. We understand it was flown by a Transworld pilot, accompanied by Transworld's chief engineer, Mike Walsh, who was in charge of the slinging mechanism. Sean Oakes, who was a maintenance engineer with Transworld at the time, describes what happened next, as told to him by the now deceased Mike Walsh. Mike was telling me the story from his point that uh, they took off out of Shannon and uh, they were climbing out and uh, Mike could see the shadow of the helicopter and the coffin underneath on the ground ahead of him. But as the helicopter picked up speed, Mary's coffin began to swing. Then, as they went along, he suddenly realised that the shadow of the coffin and the helicopter was getting greater. The helicopter flew in a straight line across the Shannon estuary, towards the village of Ballinacalli, County Clare. As any helicopter pilot would know, if you carry a load under slung, they are very inclined to be unstable, especially if it's a symmetrical load. And a coffin, of course, is symmetrical, but it's not aerodynamic. And so it became unstable as soon as they gained forward flight. In fact, if they had had more experience, they would have known if they'd kept the speed under about 25 knots airspeed, it might have remained reasonably stable, 
but once you go over about 30 knots, air begins to behave a bit like water, and uh, it made the thing uh, very unstable. It blows one side, creates a pressure differential, which makes it go the other way, and, and it swung from side to side. I'm Mary Hester. I am from Balnikali, have lived most of my life here. I remember, actually, when this happened, seeing the helicopter flying over west of the village and a big parcel hanging off it from the helicopter, and then I remember a bit of excitement. Shannon Airport is at the back of those hills. This is Mary Hester's brother, Michael Griffin. He was 19 years old when he came upon the scene. If you go over the road farther, you can see Shannon Airport clearly. It was a day like this, just like this now. It wasn't a wild day, it was a calm day. We were in the village and we heard the noise back here. So we ran back the road and the next thing, the noise was back there. And what happened then was the helicopter appeared up over the wood. Normally helicopters weren't seen around here that time. And this box hanging off underneath it. So we were looking at it in amazement. You know, we were gobsmacked, we were speechless to see this box hanging underneath a helicopter. And the next thing, it came up here along and up here, and we could see the helicopter dropping, dropping, dropping. Ten minutes into the journey and flying low towards the hill, Transworld Helicopters' chief engineer, Mike Walsh, was monitoring Mary's coffin hanging below. Mike Walsh, he realised that the coffin had disengaged, crashed onto the ground, obviously, and uh, they circled round and went down. We thought it had landed above on top of the, at the back of the hill there, so we ran up the road. And Mike Walsh said that uh, when they got out and had a look, he said the casket was completely open and she was out on the ground, and he said, like a true islander, he says there wasn't a bother in her. And she was out there in all her refinery. What happened next is unclear. But going on Mike Walsh's account, he and the pilot must have placed Mary's remains back inside the coffin, closed the lid before taking off again for Shannon. Within minutes, the local boys arrived into the field to find Mary's coffin lying in the grass. That's the field. That's the spot. We came in here and we saw the, the coffin. The end of the coffin was cracked. But when you looked in at the crack at the end of it, you saw the newspapers inside it. So you could actually put your hand in if you wanted to. And did you put your hand in? No, no, no. We were afraid of our life. We didn't. This was a shock now. So what size was it about or what colour was it? It was a dark brown coffin. I would think it was something like fiberglass because it was real shiny. Normal casket size. So we ran down the road again anyway, and um, Mrs Brown below at the cross, we told her, and she came up with us. And she was mother of one of the lads that was with me. We were brave now because we had the adult with us. And we went over to the coffin, and uh, we were looking at it. And then she stuck her hand in a piece, but she said there was nothing in there. But sure, who'd go looking at a coffin? It was a scary situation now. And the little place, of course, that the coffin landed in was Paradise. The field where the coffin landed wasn't far from a country estate called Paradise. Of course, this made for a good newspaper headline. The coffin actually got headlines because um, the headline said coffin fell in Paradise, but actually it didn't fall in Paradise. The townland would have been Balnikali itself. Over on Inishmion... Father Austin Fergus, Rory Keneally, Rory Concanon and other islanders were waiting for the helicopter. We were told that the helicopter with the coffin would be arriving at around four o'clock. We were kind of tired waiting, like, walking up and down because we didn't know how soon was she going to come. And we were waiting and waiting and waiting for her. Back on the mainland in Clare, the helicopter crew raised the alarm and arrangements were made to collect the coffin by road. Michael Smith. They flew back, of course, and told the manager director what had happened. And he uh, said, you know, who knows about it? And they said, well, I don't know, it's just in the field. The next thing, a van arrived in the evening from Shannon and collected the coffin and brought it away. Yellow transit van. It was a bit suspicious now. 
should have just brought the, the coffin and put it into the back of the van and bye-bye. It was all a hush hush and it was done very fast. Father Austin and Mary Folan's grandnephew, Michal Forte, remember how word was sent from Shannon to Inishmion that there was a delay. They told us anyway at the time that it was too rough coming out over the cliffs of Moor and that they weren't able to bring it out. And then said, well, he'll be out tomorrow, around 11 o'clock. So I stayed overnight then in his man. So that was it, I think. That day we were, everybody went home. If word of this got out, it would have been detrimental to Transworld Helicopters' business. Hoping to keep things under wraps, Mary Folan's coffin was quietly brought back to the hangar in Shannon. It was also a complete disaster for undertaker Jean Sheehan and his new venture. This was his version of events to former Consul General in Boston, Sean Donlan. So he was in a bit of a panic when the coffin fell, but he had a good relationship with the undertaker in Cork and he got him to send up a hearse and a new coffin and he told me how he supervised the transfer of literally the remains of the remains into the new coffin. It was decided that a second attempt would be made to transfer Mary Folan's coffin to Inishmion the following morning. But I do remember Jean telling me that the remains had to be transferred to an Irish coffin. But he had made it clear that the main reason for that was that an Irish coffin would be lighter and therefore less likely to fall off the next day. But he was persuaded by the helicopter people that now that they had a lighter coffin, there shouldn't be a problem. And he took them at their word. That Monday morning, the 3rd of April, tests were carried out to lift and fly a test coffin of greater dimensions and weight than the coffin itself. Sean Oakes, who worked for Transworld Helicopters at the time, had been home in Meath for the weekend. I arrived back in on Monday morning into the hangar in Shannon and it was all happening, so to speak. And there were, there were a lot of people, well, engineering people uh, around the helicopter and all looking at the, the slinging mechanism. Now, in today's times, they'd be looked like a, you know, a mechano set type um, slinging uh, equipment. So it, it was very fragile in, in my mind. Then they got a, a box somewhat similar to the size of a, a coffin and uh, filled it with weights uh, similar again. And they went outside and hooked it up to the helicopter again. And um, the pilot flew it around and did a whole lot of sort of gyrations with it to see would it release again. And it didn't. And of course, then they were reasonably satisfied that, you know, it was safe to uh, take it. The helicopter was airborne for 20 minutes during this test. To shorten the flight with the slung load, they decided to transport the coffin in a hearse to Lahinch Golf Course on the west coast of Clare beside the beach. With the same pilot as the previous day, but this time with a trainee pilot acting as navigator, the helicopter took off from Shannon at 10am. They set off with the coffin by road, which saved about 40 miles or maybe less probably only 25 miles, actually, I should think, by air. The helicopter met the hearse in La Hinch and the Gardaí were brought in for assistance. They marked the spot where the helicopter was to land on the golf course with the squad cars flashing lights. Retired Garda Martin O'Malley describes what happened next with Mary's coffin. Where the helicopter came down, was met by Garda Car and they secured it as secure as they could make it put on an extra sling, as far as I remember. And then they took off for the cliffs of Moher, but before leaving, the pilot said he'd come down again at the cliffs and would the patrol car go ahead of him and mark her again above with the flashing light. And he'd come down there and they would secure it and check it out and make sure everything was in order before it went over the sea to Inishman. That happened, did come down, and they did secure it, and it took off again. 10.30am. The 12-mile journey from the Cliffs of Moher to Inishmion 
was due to take 20 minutes against a 20-knot headwind. The flight in the initial stages was uneventful, but then the coffin was seen by onlookers to be swaying gently, and not long after, swaying dangerously. The Gordhi were watching from the cliffs. A short time after going out over the ocean, updraft or side winds or whatever caught it and it rattled the helicopter to a certain extent and due to the shake and motion, the coffin was lost. It slipped out of the sling down into the sea and it was plain to be seen floating. The pilot and navigator could see Mary's coffin was now floating with only three to four inches of it visible above the water. They flew to the closest piece of land, the village of Lascanner, where they ran to the local post office, phoned in the incident, before flying back out to the position where Mary's coffin was floating. Now, they flew down and they watched it for a couple of moments. Sean Oaks. And it was sort of took up a neutral buoyancy at about a foot underneath the water. And uh, there was a trawler, a fishing trawler, just up a short distance up the way, and they flew up to it. That fishing trawler was called the Star of Faith, and Sean Jennings was on board. We were fishing off a uh, clear coast down off down the Crab Island, and we were towing down, and this helicopter came above us, and the uh, pilot dropped down on one of his, one of the pilots. And he came aboard, and he told us there was a coffin gone in the sea between Inishir and the Cliffs of Moher. Well, we didn't know what he was on about first and just had to believe what he was talking about when he told us there was a coffin that fell off the helicopter. You know, it was underneath the helicopter, as far as we could understand what he was saying. That was funny, like, you know, to us. Like, you know, we thought, we, 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 I don't know, did we believe him or not at the time, you know, because it was a strange thing to tell you. So we heaved up the gear and we uh, started looking all day. By the time they returned to the spot Mary's coffin fell, there was no sign of it. In the meantime, the Gardaí at nearby La Hinch and Ennis Diamond were alerted. Coastal searches were set up immediately and air searches as well. They got another helicopter up to search the whole area, the coast and the sea, out as far as the island and up as far as Galway and down as far as the Shannon Estuary. The Gordhi at La Hinch phoned the post office on Inishmion, which was run by Mary Folan's nephew. The next thing we heard, that they lost the coffin. It fell in the sea of this canner, I suppose, round, round this canner, anyhow, the canner be. Her sister, with her was living in that house, she came down the road and she was crying <coughs> because she, had, she got the news. The Limerick leader published that Monday evening detailed the search. Along the Clare coastline, there was speculation among the searchers, many of whom had put to sea in Currocks. Some felt the coffin would not be found because its weight would make it sink. Others held the view that it would float and would be easy to locate. We steamed down around everywhere, you know, looking for back and forth, you know, all day. Fisherman Sean Jennings. We were going up and down, you know, we were going up across towards the Finnish rock and uh, the Cliffs of Moher, you know, Hex said. We went back and forth all day. <laughs> we didn't come across anything. That evening, the navigator from the helicopter was put ashore by the Jennings in Galway, where another helicopter brought him back to Shannon. And the director of Transworld Helicopters, along with undertaker Jean Sheehan, flew to the island of Inishmion to apologise to Mary Folan's relatives, Rory Keneally. But the helicopter came later that evening, and that man, he was Sheehan, he was a Cork man, the undertaker. And he was talking to the sister and the brother, I think. Um, they were upset. They were her own people. They were upset. Father Austin got an unusual request. <laughs> they watched much conversation with the helicopter people at all. They were sorry, happened like And they say they asked me what I go to in the helicopter and bless the sea while it went down. They were prepared to transport me out. Should I said I can't go down to the pier and do that. On the Tuesday, Mass was said on the island by Father Austin in memory of Mary. 
and the newspapers published a statement by the director of Transworld Helicopters expressing regret at the incident as the search continued. He denied that there was any suggestion that the coffin had been jettisoned deliberately. He also could not confirm that there had been an incident on the previous day when an attempt had been made to reach the island. Last night there was little hope of finding the coffin. Fishermen said that it might be carried by the current to the south shore near Quilty or to Doolan, depending on the point at which it had been dropped. It fell from a height of 300 feet. The search for Mary Folan's coffin, which started around noon on the Monday, continued until the Wednesday evening when it was called off. Retired Garda Martin O'Malley. Four or five days to a week later, boards from the coffin did come ashore. Fishermen picked them up in their boats and they were handed over to the Gardaí locally and then eventually they went to Shannon. But none came with the breastplate on. Do you know the breastplate where the name of the deceased is written? That didn't come. We were hoping that that might come. But what was the fallout for Transworld helicopters? There was no commotion. That was the extraordinary thing. There never was any commotion, either at that time or ever after, but nothing ever came of it. And the pilots involved? They left very shortly afterwards anyway because their training had finished, so they went home. There was no Garda investigation because it was a dead body. The investigation then was just with the Department of Aviation in Dublin. The air accident report that took place after Mary Folan's coffin disappeared into the Atlantic Ocean found a design fault in the slinging mechanism that was used to hook the coffin underneath the helicopter. It was demonstrated by experiment that repeated sideways movement can trip the manual control lever and the sling attachment hooks will open. The use of the sling in this country has been discontinued until suitably modified. Rumour went that the pilot told the winchman to let it go. It'll kill us. Retired guard Martin O'Malley. No, he could have done that, but that was not ever in writing anywhere. Life is precious, and they wanted to live, and I could just see it happening, but it, it never came up officially. Rumours also began to focus on Undertaker Jean Sheehan. Ah, he was he was very hurt by it, and um, Sean Donlan. Basically, he said it marked the beginning of the decline of his business. To this day, it's still thought there could have been more to this story. Helen Brown's father, Tommy Brown, was one of the journalists who covered it. In County Clare, I remember people would always say, oh, it was gun running the IRA, and she was never in the coffin. But were these rumours ever investigated by the Gordi? We put this to retired Garda Martin O'Malley. So everything went. It was full of drugs. It was full of guns that uh, man in Boston, that the body might never have been in it, that he had buried it quietly somewhere and in sent it home, by the way. I don't believe a word of any of it, except what, what happened on the face of it. Every bit of it is... So the coffin was there and the body was there. There was no jazz of suspicions anyway, definitely not, of anything untoward. And back to Helen. And is there anyone that saw that saw the corp, that saw the body? We found nobody living who had sight of Mary Folan's remains in Ireland. But remember what Sean Oakes mentioned earlier. Oh, Mick, Mick, uh, Mick uh, Walsh, when, the la- when it f- fell into paradise, he, he went down. Sure, he stated to me, you know, that he, he, she was out there, he says, in all our refineries, he says, and there wasn't a bother on her. Whatever Transworld's chief engineer Mike Walsh said about seeing Mary in all her refinery, we followed up on the rumour that there was no body in the coffin, instead guns for the IRA. And we asked Des Long, who was the IRA's officer in command of the Limerick area in 1967, if he'd ever come across Eugene or Jean Sheehan. No. No, that's the man who was flying the woman in. No, I didn't. Never heard it. And if any of them coffins came to America, I would have been aware of it. I was the OC in Limerick, which meant nothing would come through without you knowing it. Irish-American Pat Nee was involved with the Boston mob and gun running for the IRA in later years. Did you find anyone who maybe had heard of him or had you ever he- heard of Gene Sheehan? Nope. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. He's a, a lifelong Boston detective. Uh, 
his parents are actually from Rasmuk. And uh, we talked about it. He said he never heard anything like And he was very smart. He knew the neighborhood, the streets and that stuff. He said he never heard anything like that at all. And former Consul General in Boston, Sean Donlan, who knew Jean Sheehan, doesn't believe he was transporting arms in Mary Folan's coffin. He was a very decent man. And it's hard for me to uh, believe, despite his earlier years, when undoubtedly he was a bit of a rogue or might even be described as a chancer. I think he had long left that behind. He was a very respected leader in the Irish-American community in Boston. I would assert, because I knew him, and in particular because of the respect he had for President de Valera, I don't think he ever did it. From the east coast of America to the west coast of Ireland, Mary Folan's last wish was not to be, and on the face of it, she was buried at sea. Mary's sister Cotts told the newspapers at the time how deeply grieved the family were and how it upset them terribly. But it was now their decision to leave it to the will of God. The priest came then and blessed the whole thing, and I think even a higher priest came and they blessed it all and we got all blessed and sweets and... For the people out here, there was an acceptance that that was her fate. There was no annoyance or amazement or aggression about her loss. They seemed to accept her demise as it was. But she was a holy one and she fell in paradise, like, you know. Yeah. That would be kind of God's way of saying something, you know. I think that would be the way that people would look at it, like. You know, that would be my grandmother, you know, and then they would bless themselves and keep going, like. May they rest in peace, that is.